Good morning, everyone. The Bible reading today is Deuteronomy 31, uh, verses eight to, 9 to 18, and John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year of cancelling debts, during the festival of the tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he, shall, he will choose, you will read this law before them in the hearing. Assemble the people, men, women and children, and, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the, the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting, where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance of the, to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves in the foreign, with, to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed." Many disasters and calamities will come to them, and in, the, and in the day they will ask, Have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because all of their wickedness in, in turning to other gods. John 1, 1 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life in the, was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that comes light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the word, world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who, who came to, to, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He he who comes after me has surpassed me, and because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace, in, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, 
Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you this morning. And um, yes, masks are not mandatory uh, anymore under the government's restrictions, although that may change, one suspects. Um, But yes, I'm glad that you feel free to wear them. Um, Our greatest privilege is meeting together to hear God's word and to be reminded of his promises, and that we can still do. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, Let me pray for us as we reflect on that portion of scripture. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, and as we as we've heard it, and now as we reflect on it, Lord, would your Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts and minds, uh, pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, revealing to us the truth and beauty behind your message, and making us more like Him. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, uh, we're almost at Christmas, aren't we? I don't know. Have you seen the Coles ad? that's been doing the rounds this Christmas. It's very, very cl- clever ad, actually. It, uh, it's, of course, Coles, so food uh, figures very significantly in the ad. But its punchline is, he- here's to the joy we've all been waiting for. Yeah? Here's to the joy we've all been waiting for. And the pictures are, you know, parents, uh, it's got Curtis Stone in it. I-, I suspect your dream Christmas doesn't have Curtis Stone in it, but... It does have family, it has uh, generations, grandparents, grandkids, it's laughing, it's, uh, it's, it's people meeting together. There's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a testimony to, you know, frontline people, so there's pictures of nurses, there's Coles delivery guys, all the people who got us through the lockdown this year. And what really strikes me, it's, a, it's actually a very clever ad, and it makes you, you know, long for Christmas. What's really interesting is that in the ad, there is not, um, not even the slightest hint of anything religious about this celebration. There's, there's not an angel. I mean, there might be somewhere in the background, hidden away, but there's not really like an angel, there's no star. There's nothing referring to the, the original story that generates our Christmas celebration. Now, we'll all be, um, I assume most people in the building think that's kind of silly, a bit ridiculous. And it's an important question to ask. Why has the original story kind of disappeared from our culture? Why has it disappeared? Uh, what is it about the, the original story that perhaps weighs people down? I think people find religion and joy you know, discontinuous. There's a, there's a cognitive dissonance between the two. You, know, you talk about religion, you talk about joy. You talk about religion, you talk about celebration. And they don't fit well together. Most people don't think of religion as a celebration. They think of it as something onerous. And I, I, I guess I, if you're someone like that, for whom your, your religious convictions are necessary, but not really the source of your joy... Perhaps you think the Christian faith as a whole, the Bible, is not really a a book about joy or or, or celebration. It's a book about about holy things. Well, on one part, you're right, but I want to say 
just pause and reflect on the actual content of the Scriptures. This morning, um, we, we, we've been spending a few weeks looking at John chapter 1 and thinking about it in the context of the larger story of the Bible. And this morning, the first passage that Stephen read to us was from Deuteronomy 31. This is from the Old Testament. This is the part of the Bible, I guess, most people would say is, is probably the least joy-filled, the least celebratory but here's what is really interesting. In the Old Testament, it always conceives of the law and its content as, well, a gift, a gift. And so, I mean, we pick it up in the very first verse. So Moses wrote down the law and gave it to the Levitical priests. It's an act of giving the law, right? And, and, and even more than that, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, there are these constant testimonies to the, the goodness, actually, the sweetness, taste and see that the Lord is good, say the psalmist. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul, not just perfect because it's truthful, but perfect because it fills us up. This is a very deep conviction of the Old Testament about, about it. its, its purpose, actually, is joy, is, is, is not just joy, actually, it's celebration. Here, look at verse 10 in the, in the Deuteronomy passage. It's talking about Moses hands the law and then he says, and Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years in the year of cancelling debts during the festival of the tabernacles, do X, Y, and Z. Now what's really interesting before we get into the content of what he says, the festival of tabernacles. This is just one of seven festivals in the Old Testament. The, for, for Jews, the Old Testament prescribed a year of celebration. You have the Passover, you have the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of First Fruits, uh, the Festival of uh, Pentecost, of Atonement, of Trumpets, and, and of course, the Festival of Tabernacles that we have here, the Festival of Booths, which Glenn talked a little bit about last week. But I guess what I want to just reflect on is, here is a religion, I guess, which we often think of as, as pretty onerous and overwhelming, and yet at the heart of that religion, of that kind of the life of this people governed by this religion are these seven key festivals. You know, we think of ourselves as a culture that loves to celebrate, kind of let our hair down. We don't have seven key festivals that would signify the very identity of our people. But the Jews did. The Jews, ruled by the Old Testament, were a people who celebrated. See, actually, Old Testament religion was an invitation to celebrate was a continual invitation, actually, to celebrate. It's just really interesting to reflect on. As we think about how does religion, and particularly biblical religion, fit into the general kind of Christmas celebration culture that we live in now, we think, ah, oh, it's kind of very different. Well, on one level, no, it's not. But there is, I mean, there are nuances. There are very clear nuances, actually, and differences. And so Moses will then say, as part of this gathering together for the festival, assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns. That's really interesting as well. The celebration, not just for the Jewish, but it's for the whole community, right? He says, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God. See, it is an invitation to celebrate, but it does have a very clear focus. It's to celebrate God, to celebrate the Lord, to celebrate what he's done, what he's given his previous acts, so of course, famously, the festival of the Passover, this great communal moment where everyone gets together and they, they share a meal. This, uh, this festival 
This festival is a remembrance of what God had done in the book of Exodus when he saved Egypt. So I just, I guess as we think about, oh, how does religion fit with celebration and, and our culture of Christmas, on one level I want to say, actually, the, the inclination in our hearts to celebrate together is actually something that God has given us. It's in his word, it's found even in the Old Testament. Now, having said that, I can understand why religion doesn't sit easily with our culture of celebration. Because even as we read this passage in Deuteronomy, there's the first, you know, four or five verses, the first paragraph, if you're looking at it in your Bible printed here or at home, what you'll see is the first paragraph is all about this invitation to this celebration and what the tabernacle time should look like. But then it almost, it, it switches gear very quickly. Did you notice that? It becomes very, very doom and gloom, doesn't it? The, the Old Testament is weighed down in a sense. It, it is limited. Its, its spirit of celebration is constantly limited. As much as God wants to draw his people together, there's always something, there's always a couple of things that seem to be standing in the way. As soon as he lays out a, a, a command to do a particular activity to sell it in, in a form of celebration, almost immediately God will re- reply to that with a, a chastening word. And we find that word again. So, and I think there's a couple of limitations that we see at play in, in that kind of culture, that religious culture of celebration, which are worth reflecting on. The first one is the limitation that's, at, that's there at the very heart of the person bringing this law or this invitation. It's Moses. So he says to Moses, now the day of your death is near. It's a very morbid way to, to kind of transition, isn't it? But he says in verse, now the day of your death is near. And it's a reminder, I guess, as great as Moses was, the great lawgiver, the great religious inviter, so to speak, of the Old Testament, as great as he is, he's still limited. He's still limited. As good as he was, as phenomenal a leader as he was for Israel, in shaping their culture, in directing them in a Godward nature, his time would come to an end. His time would come to an end. And so, in a sense, the invitation that we find in the Old Testament is limited because of the, the very leaders that God has had. They are not perpetual leaders. They come and go. And this is the testimony of the Old Testament. As you go through, you have good kings and you have bad kings. You have good prophets and you have bad prophets. And this limits the very culture. It means that ultimately, though the Old Testament longs to be a, a, a genuine, open invitation for all people to come and celebrate the Lord it's always tainted, it's always limited by the very nature of the people it's speaking to. And it's not just obviously the prophets, it's the people themselves, the nation of Israel. Here's what God says to Moses, you're going to rest with your ancestors and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They'll forsake me and break the covenant land made with them. This is a really heavy part of the passage. I'm constantly struck by this. He says, I want you to come and celebrate, but guess what? Actually, ultimately, what you're going to experience is judgment doesn't feel like much of an invitation. Uh, it's interesting, actually, the way he describes this. He says, one of the reasons why I can't just give you this open celebration is that you have a propensity to celebrate the wrong things in the wrong way. I think that, that, that image, people soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods. It evokes kind of this cultic worship and celebration that's misplaced. Yeah. And, and it's misplaced because they've forgotten God. They've forgotten the God who brought them into the promised land. 
This is also the problem with the Old Testament's great invitation to celebrate, to, to rejoice, is that ultimately the people forget the Lord. They celebrate the wrong things. Now, I mean, if you think about the world we live in, you say, oh, of course, I can see that playing out. I can see how people forget it. And it's true, and I guess there's a warning to, to each person here, but in the world in general, actually, as we forget the Lord in this season, judgment is the outflowing of that forgetfulness, right? But you've got to remember, this is actually a word not to the surrounding nations, not to the Philistines, not to the Canaanites. This is a word to God's people. And actually, so his, his problem is not with the world out there, so to speak, but with the world in here. You can have, a, you can have the religious observance, but not the, relig- the heart that's at the centre of it. And so that will, that will destroy your celebration. I was reading an article from, uh, and a sermon from Charles Spurgeon, who's a, a preacher from the 19th century. Here's what he says. This is one of his Christmas sermons. He says, There are some very religious people that on Christmas would never forget to go to church. Yet their way of spending the rest of the day is remarkable. They would not consider they'd kept Christmas in a proper manner if they did not verge on gluttony and drunkenness. It's, it's really telling. Because, I mean, it's written in the 1800s, but it's true still today, isn't it? We were talking about this, ironically, at our staff Christmas lunch. Uh, we, we were saying how, I don't know if this is your family practice, but... We're reflecting that in some of our families, there's certainly a season where, you know, because of you had to see all the different family members and the different sides, you'd, you'd have this phenomenal lunch, but then you had to back it up with a phenomenal dinner. And so you get to Christmas night, and here was this amazing spread of food, and you just, the worst thing possible was to put that food in your mouth, but you just have to do it. Because, because of course, that is what Christmas is about, isn't it? That is what Christmas is about. Oh, Spurgeon's challenging us. The scriptures are challenges here. Have we forgotten the Lord? You know, have we forgotten the Lord in the midst of all of our celebrating? Are we actually celebrating the wrong person? Are we celebrating the wrong thing? This is, this is very challenging for us because, you know, this is, this is the world we live in, right? This is the world we live in, which thinks of Christmas this way. And I, I guess, you know, as you hear Spurgeon, you even hear me today, you think, oh, no wonder no one wants to hear religion on Christmas Day. I mean, how can you do that when you hear this from the Word? How can you throw yourself wholeheartedly into that when the Word of God says, as soon as you forget me, you'll be judged? I mean, before you throw out, though, what the Scriptures have to say here, and I suspect most people in the building are not going to do that, but... Maybe you're watching online, or maybe you are actually just saying, oh, this is exactly why religion and holidays don't mix. Just consider our Christmas right now. Okay? We've built it on all these things. Family, food, recreation. This is, this is our vision of Christmas. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking there'll be less people around at Christmas. Our gatherings will be smaller They'll be, more, they'll be more somber. We'll keep our fingers crossed that we get to Christmas and don't get told we have to sit in isolation for seven days. Our ability to go on holiday is muted. Right? 
And, and even if we actually have nothing to do on Christmas Day, we're filled with anxiety, aren't we? Because all the things that are supposed to make our Christmas good are so uncertain this year. Again, like last year. And maybe they'll be like that next year. And you see how when you celebrate the wrong things, the wrong gods, whether, whether they're, they're, they're your family, whether they're the, the, the comforts of the modern world, they actually, they actually bring a judgment upon yourself. It's not that God is just vindictive. He doesn't like that you like family more than him, and so he's going to judge you. He said he understands that when you build your life on any of those gods, when Israel prostitutes themselves to the gods of the other nations, it's just, it just results in its judgment in and of itself. Just like when you build your, your, your sense of a, a fulfilling life on holidays, or a full family, that just when you build your sense of purpose and value in your life on, on getting all the grandkids around the table with you at Christmas time, it builds an inherent, an inherent fragility to yourself, which will be broken at times, and will bring judgment upon you, the judgment of hopelessness, the judgment of meaninglessness, the judgment of despair. We, we We want magic in Christmas. We threw out the magic when we threw God out. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because if Christian spirituality is the Old Testament, all the Old Testament has to do, all the Old Testament can do, sorry, is identify the problem that we're we're faced with. But of course, the Christian faith is not just the Old Testament, but is the declaration that an even better gift has come, an even better gift. We've spent uh, the last couple of weeks showing ourselves that, you know, at the birth of Jesus, we have the Creator becoming the created. We saw last week that we've seen God who is distant coming close. This week, as we, as we finish this mini-series preparing us for next week and the Christmas celebration we see at the end of John's prologue that the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ brings a better gift, a better gift than whatever existed before. So here's what John says in John chapter 1, verse 16. He says, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Actually, the word grace is also gift. So you could say we've all received a gift in place of the gift already given. His point is the Old Testament was a gift. This invitation by God to his people was a gift. But as we've seen, it's a limited gift. We've received a better gift now. This was an act of grace. We've received a better grace. This was old grace, but we've received new and better grace. Something far better in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something actually worth celebrating. N.T. Wright, the author, says this. He says, the law given by Moses, point, that's the old grace, points in the right direction. But like Moses himself, it doesn't take us to the promised land. For that, you need grace and truth that come through Jesus Christ. His point is, the Old Testament spirituality was always limited. It was always limited. But in Jesus Christ, it's unlimited grace. It's unlimited grace. I don't know if you've, uh, you've got one of these phones at home. I love that Fisher-Price still make these with the dial even though my kids actually didn't know what this was when they saw this. I had to explain to them how this phone worked. They love it. It's the kind of thing you give your kid, isn't it? A plastic phone with a dial. It's obviously connected to nothing. 
But for a one or two year old, this is more than sufficient, isn't it? This is great, actually. This is a source of entertainment. Of course, when you get to 15, 16, 17 years old, that doesn't do anymore, does it? You need the real thing. And I guess what, what N.T. Wright's bringing out here, what, what, what the fundamental point that John is making in verse 16, where he says we've been grace, been given grace in place of grace already given, is we were given this for a moment. We were given this for a moment. But don't hold on to this, because the real thing is coming. This is actually useless for what you really needed to do. But the gospel, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the, real, that's the real deal. That's full grace. That's unlimited grace. And it's only because of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes this gift better? What makes this grace that Jesus Christ gives better? Well, that's partly what John is going to spend his gospel unpacking for us. We're going to spend first term next year thinking a little bit about what John has to say. But it's interesting because in verse 17, he says this, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He could have said, for the first gift was given through Moses and the second gift came through Jesus Christ. But the reason why he uses law, I think, here is he's really trying to differentiate between that first imperfect, minor, limited gift and the real gift that we mean in Jesus Because in the first gift, the old gift, the old grace, was always a grace that required you comply with something. Whereas the new grace that you find in Jesus Christ is just something that you enjoy. The old gift is like, it's like the recipe. But the new gift is something like the cake. You don't have to do anything, you just feast on it. The old gift was something that could measure you. And in fact, that was its very purpose, the law, was to measure you. And always you were found wanting. But the new grace, the better grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the grace that just blesses you. It just blesses you. The old grace was something that was handed down without any impact on the lawgiver. They just handed it down. It's law. It's handed down like like a lawmaker. Whether the person complies with it or not doesn't matter. But new grace is something that's personally costly, that bears the failures of those people who didn't comply with it. John says, this is the grace that has been given in Jesus Christ. This is the better gift. Of course, the question is, why can John suddenly make this extraordinary claim that now in Jesus, unlike in Moses, something better has come about? The answer is where he started from at the beginning of this. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The Word, who John the Baptist says in verse 15, was before me, has now come after me. The Word, the one who upholds the world, who with just a word brings things about, becomes a child in a manger. The Word, who is high and mighty, holy and lifted up, has come close. The Word become flesh. It is only because of that, of course. Because if Jesus Christ is just like Moses, he's limited just like Moses. But Jesus Christ is God himself, become flesh. And not, of course, just become flesh. More than that. You see, it's not enough just for Jesus to be born in this world, is it? Look at this in Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. 
This is God's talking to Moses. He says, and when, you know, when, they, when, when Israel forget me, this is what will happen. In that day, I'll become angry with them and forsake them, and I'll hide my face from them, and they'll be destroyed. You know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of Jesus, doesn't it? Reminds me of that moment on the cross when he says, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the word becomes flesh, the word can bear the curse of the world. He can bear the very curse that, that Moses was talking about. It's not that Jesus wipes the law away and says it's unimportant. He says, I have complied with it. I have been measured for your sake. I have been burdened instead of you. That's the gospel. That's why, you see, that's why, that's why the gra- grace can can meet you and you can just enjoy it. That's why grace can meet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can just be blessed by it. Because God has come close in the Lord Jesus. See, it's actually in the manger, in that moment, when this little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, accessible to all and everyone. That's the extraordinary thing about the manger story, isn't it? There are no barriers there to Jesus. Anyone can come to him, from a poor shepherd boy to a wise king. Anyone can come to him. And you know what the tragedy of leaving Jesus out of the Christmas celebration is? You lose that. You lose that. I want to encourage us this, uh, this week as we prepare for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, return to the Lord Jesus. And uh, if you're in Sydney, come and celebrate with us, of course. But more than that, it's not just, of course, the church service, is it? It is to celebrate Christ in our lives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the the better grace that you offer us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that he came, he was measured for us, he was cursed for us, so that we might enjoy you and enjoy your blessings this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.